remain standing for our sermon text from Colossians chapter 1. I'll read the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit And it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and do And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. As far the reading of God's Word, the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word because it is truth. And we need your help to understand it and to do it this day. Give us the grace that we need by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The question that I've put before us as we consider Paul's prayers is this. Are the petitions that we usually present to God in line with what Paul prays for? Does the center of our prayers look like the center of Paul's prayers? Oftentimes at the core of our petitions to God, unless we're diligent, at the core our requests for things like good health, recovery from illness, safety and travel, a good job, the emotional needs of our children, success in business, and all kinds of other things like that. Good things. They're great things to pray for. I pray for those things constantly for my family and for you as I pray for the saints throughout the week, the body of Christ here. I want you to keep Praying about these things, seeking God's mercy and his favor, giving thanks for these things. 
But I don't want these things to be at the center of your prayers or mine. The core of your prayers should not be made up of of things that will make you and those you love comfortable and happy and safe and secure. The heart of our prayers should go far deeper than that. Than requests for God just to remove discomfort and setbacks and stress from our lives. And so we can ask how much of Paul's praying is focused on these sorts of things. Important things, but not the most important. It's not that God is unconcerned about these things. It's not that we shouldn't talk to God about them. But these things should not be at the center of our prayers. We need to displace them with other things that we get from Scripture. So that they are not the heart and soul of our prayers. That they're not at the top of our list of priorities in prayer. Because I don't think they were at the top of the list of Christ's prayers as he intercedes for us. Or Paul's prayers as he intercedes for the churches. And that's why we need to study Paul's prayers. It's why we need to ask God's spirit to use Paul's praying, his example, to reshape our praying. Paul told us to imitate him. I think that includes in prayer. Perhaps most of all, we should imitate him in prayer. And so we need to ask God to reconstitute the center of our praying. Today we're going to look at Paul's prayer in Colossians 1. And I'm going to take us through verses 9 to 14. I read 1 through 14 to get some context. And we'll maybe refer back to a couple of things. But really 9 to 12. And if you noticed in your, in your liturgy, in the bulletin, there are a couple of inserts. One for the baptism. But then the other one is for you to take home and to use in your prayers. If you want to use this passage that that I'm preaching on this morning as a template and to put into practice what we've been talking about regarding praying the scriptures, praying through scripture, using scripture, scriptural ideas and even words in our prayers. And as we go through these verses, I'm going to make four observations and then comment and, and make applications along the way. The first observation is that Paul is praying for believers That he has never met. He writes in verse 9. From the day we heard about it. We have not ceased to pray for you. What did Paul hear about? Well if you read the previous section there. uh, Verses 3 to 8 provide the answer. Paul had heard about their faith in Christ Jesus. And their love for all the saints. And remember that's what gets Paul going. We learned that last week. And so he says in verse 9, from the day that we heard about that, we haven't stopped praying for you. Paul has only heard about the Colossian Christians. He, he, he hadn't got to meet them personally as he did the Thessalonian Christians, even if it was just for a few weeks. He at least got to meet them. He knows them. But not so the Colossian Christians. The church at Colossae was evidently founded by Epaphras. You saw his name there early in the reading. Paul mentions him in verse 7. But even if Epaphras did not plant the church, he was a shepherd of the believers there in Colossae. And although he had never visited these Christians, he assures them that he is praying for them, interceding for them. 
He's added them to his prayer list. And they can rest assured that he's not going to stop praying for them. And Paul prays diligently, unceasingly, for people he does not even know, never met. Is our praying as broad and extensive as this? How much of our praying extends beyond our own family members, our small group of friends, maybe our church body? Now, of course, our primary responsibility is our own circle, right? That's where we we must start. It's with our own people. After all, if, if we don't pray for our own, who will? But if our small circle is as far as our prayers get, maybe we have become too inward focused, too self-centered, too introverted, focused on ourselves and our own world. If that is true, then our prayers, they may be an index of how small and self-centered our world is. This is why it's good for us to pray for Christians in other parts of the state, other parts of the country, other parts of the world that we do not know, that we've only heard about their love for God, their faithfulness to Jesus. To find out as much as we can about them and their needs. And to intercede to God on their behalf. This has the added benefit if we cultivate this in our prayer life. It has the added benefit of reminding us of our unity in our fellowship in the spirit with the church. The blood-bought saints throughout the entire world. Paul was quite aware of that. So number one is that Paul prays for Christians he's never met. He doesn't know. He's only heard about them. Number two, Paul prays unceasingly. We're still in the first part of verse nine. Paul says, from the day we heard about it, we have not ceased praying for you. Now, what does it mean to pray unceasingly? It doesn't mean to pray nonstop. 24 hours a day, every second of the day, that you're always somehow, no matter what you're doing, you're praying. Uh, You know, when Paul said he was praying unceasingly, he's not saying that he figured out how to pray in his sleep, for example. What Paul is saying here is that he maintains set times of prayer. And in those prayers, he intercedes for these believers. And, And the meaning of that word is clear In Romans 1, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says, Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. You see, he kind of defines it for us. Praying for someone without ceasing means praying for someone regularly. Every time you pray. So if you're going to say that you pray for someone unceasingly, you need to pray unceasingly, which means regularly. Paul is telling the Colossian Christians that he prays for them. He talks to God on their behalf in his disciplined, regular times of prayer, which would have been more than once a day. The point of application here is that there are some things that we should always be praying for. There are general things that we need to keep asking God for. Now, we're often exhorted to pray specifically, to talk to God about specific things, and that's true too. We 
We, we must do that. We should also uh, talk to God about specific things, specific people, things that are they're relevant in someone in someone's life this week today. But underneath these particular prayers for particular needs, there needs to be, there must be a foundation of general, non-specific prayers that we lift up to God on behalf of others again and again and again. And this, this sort of takes the pressure off if you think about it. Uh, you know, this the template that I gave you in your as an insert, that's... That's the prayer Paul uses here, and it's pretty general, right? Uh, but it's rich. It's God-inspired. And you can know that when you're praying this, maybe sometimes you're praying and you don't know how to pray. You don't know what to pray for. You don't, the, the specifics are not coming to you. Well, then go to these general requests and make them known to God. Paul's prayers provide us with a foundation of general spiritual needs that every believer has. And so Paul prays again, again, every day, multiple times per day, the general petitions we see here in verses 9 to 14. And so why? Why did he do this? Why offer up these general prayers for a body of believers that he really barely knows and he's never met in person? Was it worth his time? Of course it was. And here's why. Prayer is the means that God has appointed for giving his people the blessings that are already theirs in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. Prayer is the means that God has appointed for giving to his people the blessings that are already theirs in Christ Jesus. So God is sovereign. We know that. But he is an appointed means for giving his blessing, blessings. And the primary means is prayer. Paul, Paul believed that. Paul believed that when he offered up this prayer, he was participating in God's plan, his kingdom. Prayer is the conduit of God's blessings for believers. So be one of those conduits. Participate in what God is doing. Very simple. Offer up this prayer that Paul prayed. I wonder how different I wonder how different things would look around us all around us in our small circles and then maybe one or two circles after that. I wonder how different things would look if we prayed for one another. Let's just keep it in this group. Let's just think Christ the King Church. If we prayed for one another using Colossians 1, 9 to 14, Every day. What if parents prayed for each of their children by name every day using verses 9 to 14? What if each of you started praying for the saints at Christ the King every day using this prayer? What if, now we can widen it, what if we prayed every day for persecuted believers using this passage would God hear it would God do things would God move I believe so we have because we do not ask oftentimes in other words what if the foundation of our prayers for other Christians was that 
God would fill them with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, that they might bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God, that they might be empowered with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, that they might learn to give thanks to the Father for delivering them from the domain of darkness and transferring them into kingdom of light. What if? These are the things that every one of us in this room needs every day. Again and again, we need it. These are what the person sitting right next to you, behind you, in front of you, will need tomorrow and the day after that and the week after that. These were the things that Paul prayed for unceasingly, without ceasing, for the Colossian Christians. So, number one, Paul prays for believers he's never met. Number two, he prays unceasingly for these believers he's never met. And now let's get into the content of Paul's prayer. Number three, Paul asks God, to fill believers with the knowledge of his will. We're in the second half of verse 9. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, what does Paul mean by the knowledge of God's will? He wants Christians to be filled with it. But what is it? How do I get this knowledge of God's will? Could there be anything more important than to know than God's will? How do I figure out God's will? When we use the expression, God's will, will of God, God's will for my life, we often are referring to God's will for some future decision, maybe, That we need to make God's will for where I'm going to live. Uh, God's will for whether I'm going to take this job or that job. Or where I'm going to go to school. Or which car I'm going to buy. Who I'm going to marry. That's an important one. It is good to seek God's will in all of these things. Again, the Lord graciously leads us in all of these ways. And so we should not despise when God gives us guidance in the things that I just mentioned. He has in my life, and I'm thankful for it. However, if this is at the heart of our understanding of God's will, then we are in danger of thinking about the will of God in self-centered terms instead of scriptural terms. God's will then becomes something that is about my future, my vocation, My needs, my life. God, of course, is concerned about all of those things. But this way of viewing God's will is theologically short-sighted, biblically short-sighted. It erases from our minds, if we're not careful, the dominant ways in which the Bible speaks about the will of the Lord. Listen to the way Psalm 143, verse 10, talks about God's will. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. 
May your good spirit lead me on level ground. Did you hear that? The psalmist isn't asking God to show him his will. He didn't say, teach me to discern your will. Teach me how to know what it is. No, he says, teach me to do your will. And so we start there. The psalmist is not encouraging us to find God's will out there. God's will, fundamentally, is already known. In Scripture, God's will is not a secret. It's not a future mystery. It has been revealed in Scripture. The difficult question is not, what is God's will for my life? The hard question is, am I willing and ready to do God's will for my life? More important than asking God to reveal His unrevealed will to you is asking God to empower you to do his will that he's already revealed to you in his word. Paul talks about God's will as well a lot in several places in his letters and in first Thessalonians four verse three, he says straightforwardly, this is God's will. Colon, your holiness, this is God's will. Your holiness. God's will for your life is for you to be holy. You start there. In the following chapter in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verses 16 to 18, Paul says, Be joyful always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So from these two chapters alone, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, we learn that God's will for all Christians is to do at least four things just right off the bat. Be holy, be joyful always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in every single circumstance. So we can start there. If you do not desire to pursue the will of God that he's already revealed to you in his word, then what business do you have seeking his will for other important life decisions? If you pursue God's revealed will, what he has shown you, what he's made known to you in no uncertain terms, then his unrevealed will for you, for your life, for important decisions, will be added unto you, as Jesus says. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And everything else you need will be given to you at the right time. Look at the very end of verse 9. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding, Paul says. Uh, That word spiritual there, I think, modifies both wisdom and understanding. Paul wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What Paul means here is that the knowledge of God's will consists of spiritual wisdom and understanding. And the word spiritual here means from the Holy Spirit. Not some nebulous general idea of spirituality. It is Holy Spirit. The more Holy Spirit wisdom and understanding you have, the more you know God's will. So where do Holy Spirit wisdom and understanding come from? They come from knowing Jesus 
and walking in his spirit. Very simple, actually. And how do we know Jesus and how do we walk in his spirit? By praying in the spirit continually without ceasing and by saturating your heart and your mind in the word of God, which is the will of God and the mind of God. And so Paul prays that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will, a knowledge that consists of Holy Spirit wisdom and understanding, a knowledge that comes through knowing God by his word and spirit. This recipe is how the Colossians will withstand the the subtle and not so subtle pressures of their surrounding pagan culture. Knowing God's will means thinking and acting like Christians. It means being holy and joyful and thankful and prayerful all the time without ceasing. The world and the church need people who live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We need Men and women, boys and girls who meditate on God's word and who desperately depend on God's word day to day. The life that it gives. We need people who decide to be joyful. People who decide to be filled with the joy of the Lord. Because they know it's God's will, even if it might not be their own. We need more Christians who know the will of God in Scripture because, after all, they know Scripture. And then who are willing to go out and do it. That's why this passage from Paul must be part of our regular prayers for the saints, for our loved ones. Few things are more urgent in the church of Jesus Christ than a deep knowledge of God's will that he has revealed in the passages In the pages of scripture. So number one. Paul prays for believers he's never met. Two. He prays unceasingly for these believers. Three. Paul asks God to fill believers with the knowledge of his will. Primarily in scripture. And now we've come to the last observation. Number four. Paul prays that believers might fully please Jesus. Look at verse 10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. What does it mean to walk worthy of Jesus Christ? Is that even possible? What's it mean to be fully pleasing to him? Fully pleasing to the Lord. Paul spells it out in the second half of verse 10 and Then in verses 11 and 12, he spells it out in verses 10 to 12. And what it means is this, to walk worthy of Jesus and to please Jesus through your good works, through your actions. But before we look at the details, before we look at how Paul spells it out, I want us to meditate on this phrase, fully pleasing him. Or... In everything, pleasing him, the Lord Jesus. Pleasing him in every way. God's desire is for his people to please Jesus 
in every single thing that they do. Just want to meditate on that reality before we jump in here. Every word, every thought, every action, every reaction, every decision, every minute of your life should be done with an eye and a heart toward pleasing King Jesus. That's kind of what it all comes down to in terms of your duty. In every situation and in every turn, a believer must ask himself, what would Jesus have me do right now? How can my words and my conduct honor the king in this moment? What, what would be most pleasing to God right now? If we were to ask these sorts of questions more often, think about how they would transform Everything around us, the way the way we work, the way we spend our leisure time, the way we talk to our spouses and to our children and to our parents. The way we read, the way we watch, what we watch, how we spend our money, how we interact with our neighbors, how we budget our time and our finances. A knowledge of God's will has as its goal. A deep desire to please Christ Jesus in everything. Paul goes on to sketch out what it what a life pleasing to Jesus means. It means bearing fruit in every good work. That's what the second half of verse ten says. Colossians one ten. Bearing fruit in every good work. In another place, in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, Paul says that Christians have been saved by grace through faith and that this salvation It's not by works. Your good works are not what save you. But then in the very next verse, in verse 10, Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you were not saved by your good works, because of your good works in any way. God didn't look down through the corridor of time and see that you were going to be good, produce good works, and then save you. Your good works had nothing to do with your being rescued from sin and death and hell. But you were saved to do good works. Paul cannot imagine anyone being pleasing to Christ without Being fruitful in good works. That's challenging, but it's true. The people who are fully pleasing to Jesus are the people who are bearing fruit in every good work. Now, this is not talking about sinless people. We know that, right? This is talking about people who still have to confess their sin to God and repent of sin. But it is possible, you see, to be pleasing to Jesus. Because he looks at your good works with mercy. And grace, the same grace and mercy that he showed you to save you. He shows you that same mercy in your good works. So they don't have to be perfect. It's not sinlessness. But bearing real fruit. Second, a life pleasing to Jesus means increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what the very end of verse 10 says. Increasing in the knowledge of God. For Paul, the knowledge of God is not primarily knowledge of doctrinal facts and theological formulas as important as those things are. 
That's part of it. The knowledge of God, though, is intimate knowledge, a personal relationship with God through Jesus. Not just something that you rely on because you were baptized and your parents have faith and so you're good. It's an intimate, personal knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is similar to the knowledge of God's will back in verse 9. They are similar in that both come through knowing God's word and being in God's spirit, walking in his spirit, being in fellowship with his spirit. They both come that way. It pleases Jesus when we grow in our knowledge of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That pleases Jesus. That's why we need to ask God for deeper knowledge of him for ourselves, for whoever we love, and for the saints that we don't know. Your greatest need is to know God. And God promises you, he promises in his word, that when you seek him, From your heart, you'll find him. You may not know the best way to do that, but if you're doing it from your heart and you're seeking him, you will find him. Third in verse 11, a life pleasing to Jesus means being empowered for joyful endurance and patience. Being empowered for joyful endurance and patience. This is how Paul views the work of the Spirit in believers. The Spirit empowers us with power. Those are the same, that's the same root word there in that verse. Empowers us with power according to his glorious might. And to what end? To give us endurance and patience. And the power that Paul is talking about here, again, we talk about spiritual. It's not, it's Holy Spirit uh, spirituality, not just general spirituality. And the power here is not you know, like the, the force be with you kind of a thing. It's resurrection power, spiritual power, Holy Spirit power, Jesus power. It is power from above that flows from the resurrected King, Jesus. Power that comes from the throne of God by means of the resurrected and ascended Christ. In the New Testament, spiritual power is resurrection power. Now, a couple places Paul spells it out, but when he doesn't spell it out, it's still true. Paul connects the power that Christians have with the power that raised Christ from the dead in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, and then in Colossians 2, 12. As a believer in the resurrected Christ, you have his resurrection power running through you. And this supernatural power produces in you supernatural gift of joy-filled endurance and patience. Endurance and patience, they go hand in hand. When you have one, you have the other. To endure faithfully, you must patiently wait on God. And waiting on God requires what? Endurance. He doesn't always do it in our time. Endurance and patience require spiritual stamina, spiritual fortitude. They require power from God. Paul's prayer is that God would give these believers the strength they need to endure with patience and to do it for the joy that has been set before them, just as Jesus did it for the joy set before him. 
You see, it pleases Jesus when persecuted Christians maintain their joy. It pleases Jesus when insulted believers triumph with contentment, self-composure, self-control. It pleases Jesus when suffering believers trust God's all-wise, not always understood providence. That's why you must ask God to empower the brethren, your brothers and sisters in Christ, with resurrection power for endurance and patience. Fourth, a life pleasing to Jesus means joyfully giving thanks to the Father. That's what verse 12 says, giving thanks to the Father. Notice that Paul doesn't just give thanks for what God is doing in believers. He also prays that the believers themselves would learn how to give thanks themselves for what God is doing in them and others. And what should Christians be thankful for? Verses 12, verses 12 to 14 explain what you can give thanks for. Maybe you should be at the top of the list. You should give thanks because the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is at the center of what you should be thankful for. To live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You must overflow with joyful thanksgiving for the salvation you have received from his hand. You have been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Then your appropriate response is joy filled gratitude and you can give thanks to God that he has done this in you and that he has done this in your brothers and sisters in Christ and then from that flow prayers for their sanctification that they would grow in love and faithfulness to Jesus the stuff we've been talking about the last couple weeks Paul's exhortation in verses 12 to 14 is that you give thanks for the great salvation that he has delivered to you and to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Give thanks that when Jesus took up his cross on Calvary, he fought victoriously and defeated the dark domain that would have had its grip on you eternally. On the cross, Jesus silenced the accuser. He conquered your greatest enemies. Sin and death and the devil. In Jesus, you have redemption. Through the blood of Jesus, you have redemption. Because of the blood of Christ, because of the cross of Christ, you have the forgiveness of sins. Give thanks to God for that. Give thanks to God that he has done this out of his own good pleasure. Not because of your works. But give thanks that he has done it for you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then, as a way of giving thanks to God, go forth and bear fruit in every 
good works and live in a way that pleases Jesus. Let's pray together and ask for these things. Oh God, please fill the saints at Christ the King Church with the knowledge of your will and all the wisdom and understanding that comes from the Holy Spirit that they may walk worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may all please him in everything, bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God, that we may be empowered with all resurrection power according to your glorious might for joyful patience and endurance that we may give thanks to you, Father, who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light, who delivered us from the authority of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of all our sins. Amen.